This is The Universe, episode 14, I Can't Grow Facial Hair, on Sunday, August 5th, 2012. And now, fighting for space, for you. This episode is hosted by returning star Samuel Eberts and Ryan Rampersad. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good, how are you? I'm pretty good. Welcome back to The Universe, this is your show, so it's your yep. first time back on in a long time. Good to be back. I know you were away for many, many months. For... Six weeks or so. Oh, I thought, I, I I don't know. I don't know about that. I think it was many, many months. I think your beard is just stretching for miles. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, you can't shave in China. I actually didn't shave in China. Well, that's reasonable. I can't grow facial hair, so I didn't really get a beard. I like how that's just something you know, and that's just, just <clears throat> an attribute of yourself. Well, I did, but it's very, like, scraggly and short. Well, I have a beard. I'll make up for it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so how have you been doing these days? First week back. Pretty good. Just hanging out, catching up with people that I obviously didn't see because I was in a different country. Yes. Well, and of course, we did a special for your return. We had a little party and a return special. Uh, our listeners can check that out. It is, it's called Sam is Back. And it was a good special. He talks about his Chinese experience. It is Tokyo fun. Yep. Good, good episode. Yep. With some minor technical difficulties. Although they were mitigated in the end, it's okay. Not a big deal. Yeah. Right. Um. So yeah, had a good had a good time on my trip, but uh, good to be back. And apparently, I missed some important things that yes, you did. Uh, didn't really get covered while I was gone. Although I although I heard that we, there was some... we did do a couple episodes without you with with some guests. I think I some for some reason I'm not remembering well. Maybe because it was a long time ago. But we did do some shows without you. Although the show that, of course, we needed to do, which was the Higgis Boson announcement coverage episode, that's the one we couldn't do because we failed miserably. Right. <clears throat> um. Well, I guess I am here to fix that. So we can talk about the Higgs boson today. Why don't we, why don't we talk about the Higgs boson? Since that that is the big science news of the summer, I think. Yeah, definitely. Very big. Um, so for those of you who are not paying attention to the world, um, the researchers at the LHC announced, uh, the discovery with the requisite sigma of certainty of, uh, the new Higgs particle or Higgs-like particle. Um, it's still unconfirmed whether it is the Higgs boson, but we'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, so I think on, on July 4th, uh, which is pretty cool for Americans. Yes, that, that was LHC pretty... is in Switzerland, so it doesn't matter to that, but. Yeah, well, still. A lot no. of the, yeah. Um, so they announced, uh, like a four and a half sigma certainty, I think. Yep. First, um, from both the CMS and the Atlas detectors at the LHC. Um, which is not, so normally for a new particle to be Considered actually discovered, you need a five sigma certainty, um, which means some very high percentage chance that it's actually does exist. And so according to it is according to the uh, BBC, the formal threshold for claiming the discovery of a particle is five sigma, which would be equivalent to a one in three point five million chance that it is not a new discovery. Right. So, which I mean, I was. I didn't really expect that they would not, I don't know, they they had some early indicators of different um, energy ranges earlier in the summer before I left, and so I wasn't super surprised that they had actually now claimed that they discovered it, but it is still big news to the physics community. Um, and then just recently, I can't remember, it was beginning of August, uh, yeah, uh, or end of July, I guess, uh, they made another announcement indicating that the Atlas team, uh, now has a 5.9 sigma level of certainty. So it's very definite that they have discovered a particle that resides in the range of the range of energies that the boson lies in. Um, and so whether it is the Higgs boson is yet to be determined. Um, I suppose we could talk a little bit about what this particle is. That might be a good idea. Yeah. So Higgs boson is a particle that was, whose existence was indicated by the standard model, um, as sort of a mass giving mechanism 
uh, it works by or the the boson itself is a particle uh, that is sort of a result of the Higgs field, which is a way to explain um, how particles have mass essentially. And so it's a field with um, non-zero strength everywhere, which means that anywhere in the universe, even in like empty space, particles that um, any particle that is there will have mass. So it's a field that permeates everything, and the Higgs boson is a quantum of that field. So it's like the smallest particle that exists as a direct result of that field. So how does like, the Higgs field compare to like the electric field? Well, so the Higgs field, the electromagnetic field, or well, electromagnetic force is caused by. I mean, I don't know how it, how they, I don't know how to answer that really. I mean, so the Higgs works, or the Higgs field works by, um, sort of separating the electroweak forces into electromagnetic and the weak nuclear force, mm -hmm. and giving the bosons that sort of, uh, I don't know, generate the weak nuclear force mass, which would be the W and Z bosons, I think. So it gives them mass. And then the photon, which is the carrier of the electromagnetic force, does not have mass. And so it sort of splits the electroweak symmetry into the electromagnetic force and the weak nuclear force. Um, I don't really understand how that leads to them having mass, but that's how... It works. Yeah, I, I've been struggling to find an, uh, an actual answer to that same question for many months. Uh, I think a good place to look would probably to look on Wikipedia. Well, I think I might have to look on simple Wikipedia to understand it. Oh, yeah. So we found, Ryan was looking for uh, the Higgs boson page and ended up on simple Wikipedia. Yeah, I, I literally typed in Higgs boson in the, on the Google and I got to the simple.wikipedia.org for the uh, Higgs boson. And essentially, it's just a definition of the Higgs boson and recent news about it, but in simple English. Yeah, so uh, I don't see a simple entry for the Higgs mechanism, but Wikipedia does say, um, the Higgs mechanism endows gauge bosons in a gauge theory with master absorption of Nambu-Goldstone bosons arising in spontaneous symmetry break. So... That's some stuff that happens, and then you get mass. Hmm. Um, the, the actual, like, the way it works and stuff is complicated and technical, and I don't know. So, really what I wanted to talk about is uh, the announcement, I guess, of the discovery, and also the reason that they haven't um, declared it to be the Higgs boson yet. Right, okay. Um, which is a result of the process for detecting the Higgs boson, which... Um, so all, all these particles, these high energy particles generated at the LHC generally decay in, since they're in like normal space, they decay into other particles within a very, very short time span. And so the Higgs has, uh, a number of different decay channels, which are different possible, um, decay and, and results, I guess. And so there are, uh, five, I think. Um, there's like gamma decay, uh, Z boson, W boson, um, tau neutrino, and proton, or no, um, uh, it's a B, oh, B quark anti quark pair. That's the last one. So, um, yeah, so photon photon pair, uh, Z boson, Z boson pair, W boson, W boson pair, or, uh, Tau neutrino. Oh, wait, actually, I don't know if it's a tau neutrino. It could just be a tau lepton. Let me look at this article real quick. Um, yeah, so it's a, a tau lepton and tau, oh, tau electron, tau proton. So, positively charged tau lepton, negatively charged tau lepton. And then the other one, which was the B quark anti quark pair. So there's five decay channels. Two of them are easy to spot or easier to spot, which is where most of the statistical significance of the current announcement comes from is the um, photon-photon and the Z-boson pair uh, decay channels is where it's easier to see the signal from the Higgs boson decay over the background noise um, because they have a higher mass resolution than the other ones. Mm -hmm. um, 
so there's less uncertainty with, mixed in with the background signal. Uh, the really w- what would sort of cinch the deal with this being uh, the actual like the Higgs boson that currently defined by the standard model um, and that everybody's expecting would be to um, have some data indicating a B uh, B quark anti quark pair, which would that would be like sort of a unique indicator, I guess, of the yeah. Anyways, the K channels there are five. We only have good uh, data on some of them, and if we can um, get better data on the rest, then this, they'll stop calling it a Higgs-like particle and call it the Higgs boson. So, what does the Higgs boson do then? For like, without the Higgs boson, what happens to the standard? Well, model? if the Higgs boson was proven not to exist, then they would have to either come up with a new carrier for that symmetry breaking mechanism to fit into the standard model, or they would have to abandon the standard model in its current form and come up with a new explanation for how everything works. So it's pretty important. It's a big deal. Uh, you can read, uh, there's new, there's announcements from the second sort of higher certainty announcement um, in the show notes. We'll probably find some from the original announcement as well and stick them in there. Um, but I think that's about it for that. Like, when it happened back in July, there was a huge flurry of, I don't know, coverage on this. And for the most part, it was very uh, inconclusive when you're just, when you're a normal person just looking on, on at this coverage and it, it essentially nobody knows what it means. It's just, they just know that it happens and then they kind of understand it, but it's kind of also confusing too. Right. Well, it's particle physics and very complicated stuff. So it's not, not unexpected, I guess. I yeah. No. I, I don't know what the most of it is. I would be sad to see the math for it. I've actually, I really, the math is pretty cool. I've seen standard models very long. Yeah, well, I guess that makes sense. There's a lot of stuff yeah. going on there. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's it for the big, uh, well, and we'll, as more information comes out on that, I'm sure we'll mention it. Oh, yes. Uh, new stuff will always be coming out on that, I think, because it's pretty right. important. Right. Um, so, now that we did the big science thing, I got some space pictures that I think everyone should see because they're pretty awesome. Um, mm, one of them. New album is, art. Yeah, right. One of them is uh, a picture of the sun uh, in, I don't know what wavelength, I guess. Black and white. Well, <laughs> right, but it, I don't think it's a visible wavelength. It's probably infrared or something. I don't know. So when you look um, at the sun, it looks, for the most part, just in most areas, it's actually quite uniform in a random kind of way. Yeah, but right. Well, it's really cool, though, to see... I don't know, the patterning on the surface, like, I, I had no idea. I mean, yeah. I guess I've done pictures before, so I knew that it did have texture, sort of, but this is, I think, then the big black holes from the sunspots. Yeah. So what so, causes a sunspot? Um, I think they're a result of, uh, the disruptions in the magnetic field of the sun sort of throwing up charged particles into, into the air. Uh-huh. Um, I think they're related to CMEs, coronal mass ejections. Um, which are what cause uh, solar winds and solar storms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, sunspots, I guess, in my from what I've seen, uh, like images of sunspots and videos of coronal mass ejections and solar flares and stuff like that, uh, it seems like sunspots are just sort of weaker CMEs that don't leave the sun's gravitational pull so that like it just turns into an arc or whatever shoots up and falls back down to the surface mm-hmm. versus a CME actually release releases the charged particles out of like out into the solar system. Right. So yeah. But very cool picture. Mm-hmm. I have not seen something like that before, so it's very cool. Um and then we I've found another one of a possible new piece of album art or something. Just a cool spiral galaxy, um, which was taken to help in the study of a supernova that had happened in this galaxy in the picture. Um, and it's kind of funny because you, you look at it, it's like, well, hmm, maybe the brightest one is the star that was, that they're studying the supernova. But really, it's like this tiny little speck 
in the bottom middle of the photo. And so, I don't know, I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, it could be anywhere. Right. Well, don't, don't uh-huh. some supernovas, aren't they um, sometimes brighter than their parent yeah, but galaxy? Yeah, I mean, it's, far, it's further away, so then right. it looks... Right, yeah. yeah. Um, and then one last picture of the summer sky taken from hmm. the northern hemisphere, I think. Um, but I, I think this is really cool because it's got uh, excellent stitched, huge resolution, um, sort of semi-panorama of the... This section of the sky, and there's a little. This is on Bad Astronomy, so Phil Plate um, is an excellent blogger and stuff. So he meant he talks about a little bit about um, the equipment he the this amateur astrophotographer used and stuff, and uh, he's got like a picture labeling the different things that you can see in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it kind of makes me want to get some astrophotography equipment around it, but. It's probably extremely expensive. And, and also, he has a uh, little scale too. So the full moon, the full moon at the same scale as the sky that he was taking the pictures at, which is pretty pretty cool. So that just goes to show you how big the night sky is compared to what the apparent image of the moon is. Right. So, I mean, this, yeah. So this is this is a big swath of the sky. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, and it's very cool. You can see all the gas clusters and stuff. So I think this is. Uh, let's see in. Yeah, he labels some some uh, big stars, and he also labels some. Uh, I don't. They're not like constellations, but he labels um, things in the sky. Yeah, nebulas and galaxies and clusters and stuff like that. Yeah. It's just cool. So maybe it, be prepared for space photos that I'm going to take. But, but don't you, you just them. you just need to get that good DSLR camera. Right. Yeah. Well, that's probably in the, in the near future. I definitely want a new camera. Nice. Yeah. Um, I think that's it for pictures. We've got a couple of videos that we'll talk about later. Um, now uh, it is time for things that I we have found around the web uh, that are cool, either from their scientific or cool representation of science things, whatever. Um, first one is this chart of different exoplanets, uh, which sort of plots all of the verified, I think these are the verified exoplanets um, from the Kepler satellite. Uh, this was originally an XKCD comic. It's, uh, it's kind of funny that the XKCD comic started this. I right. remember reading well, this. Yeah, so these are 786 are the, is the number of known exoplanets that Kepler has discovered. And so XKCD did this graph with all the different sizes and stuff. Um, and then a graphic designer, I assume, uh, slash coder made this little interactive, uh, applet thing that shows you data for each one when you mouse over it and plots them in a circle with size and radius and atmosphere type and what year was discovered. Um, and you can choose to color by radius or color by distance to near a star. Hmm. And I think the distance to near a star one is pretty cool because yeah. all of them, most of them are gray and fairly close to their star and then you get these ones that are like there's one that's 2500 mm-hmm. eight, so that's 2500 times the distance from earth to the sun and what is that's like, how far it is how like how far is like pluto from the sun um let's see you know to give us some scale well so it depends usually uh, it's so the closest point to the sun is 30 au a wait only the apsis it is Wait, 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 wait. 49. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, so it's what, averaging about 30, 30 or so? Uh, no, I don't know, 35, 40, 40 at, 40 on average. So 25,000 AU is a lot further, right? Right, yeah. So, so that planet is essentially just out in the middle of nowhere, doing nothing, freezing to death. Pretty much. Unless uh, the sun is really, really huge, or a star. Oh, uh, yeah, that could be. Yeah, so this doesn't indicate distance from the surface of the sun. So if it's a red giant, then it could be actually a warm planet. Yeah. Well, it still probably wouldn't be very warm unless it was like huge. Right, planet. exactly. But I mean, that's that's really far. Right. Well, so I just, uh, you mentioned how, started talking about the distance that was compared to Pluto. So 2,500 is 120th of the distance to the Oort cloud, which is the cloud of comets and junk orbiting our solar system. 
or surrounding our solar system. Um, so the nearest objects and like the asteroid belt um, around the Kuiper belt is very, very close compared to the Oort cloud. But then you look at how far away that planet is, that would be a, whatever 10% of the, or 5% of the distance to the Oort cloud in our solar system. Yeah, I mean, it's far. Pretty far. Yeah. Yeah, I think you guys talked about um, the, jeez, uh, what was it? Um, Voyager or something reaching the yeah. mm-hmm. so, Yep, so the, the um, I always get confused before, between the two Voyagers, but one of them, I'm assuming it was Voyager it was, 1. Yeah, I'm, I think it was yeah. Voyager um, so Voyager 1 has now officially hit Heliopause. Mm-hmm. Now, we had talked about it, you and I had talked about it previously, even before uh, one of the more recent shows where we had talked about it again. Um, and Heliopause is where, um, it's kind of, the way I think about it is kind of like where the magnetic sheath that the Earth makes to protect us from, you know, all the sun goo, uh, or, all, you know, all of the solar storms, all the solar radiation. It's kind of the solar system's sheath from the sun from galactic mm-hmm. radiation. Right. Um, yeah, and so you can get a little idea of how far that planet would be away from uh, Voyager 1 hit the heliopause at about, I think, 120 AU or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so, right, so that this planet is outside, if it were in our solar system, it would be outside the heliopause. So it would be irradiated and most likely uninhabitable. Right. But it's still cool. It, it, well, I mean, of course, it also and that depen- almost makes it more cool. And it also, of course, depends on the sun too, or you know, the star right. there. Like, if it's right. a ridiculous star, it could have a, I don't know, helio sheath that's just gigantic. Um, but yeah, it's uh, pretty interesting. So I also have this um, thing here where so Voyager one has now hit heliopause. Voyager two is still a little bit out from that, but we'll get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I still think they need to send up some uh, perpendicular, uh, you know, probes. Yeah. Perpendicular probes. Yep. They don't have enough money right now. Darn. I don't need to go to Mars. I don't care. I, I, I need to go to the next <laughs> solar system. Right. It's closer, right? It <sighs> not it? <laughs> um, so the next thing on the list is uh, ice. So turns out, and I did not know this, that turns ice out. has uh, 15 different solid phases. Or, I mean, obviously it's solid because it's solid form of water, but it has 15, so water has 15 different solid phases. So there are. So, like sub phases, right? Forms of ice. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. So it's not a. So, like, there's three states of water in conventional yeah. wisdom, and then there's separate phases within ice. Right. I guess that's how one could say it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like, a couple of them have names. There's like, the normal ice is ice I sub H. Um, and then there's some. Other ice, which is uh, also found naturally, but not very often, and uh, it's ice sub C. But then there are also ice 2 through 15, which are all just weird ice forms that occur at different uh, pressures and temperatures and stuff. And all of them seem pretty cool. I don't know. I think they, like there's amorphous ice, or which lacks crystal structure, so it's like a liquid almost, but it's... A solid. So. Well, that's just cool in itself. Mm-hmm. So, how does one go about finding these other subphases of ice? Like, well, I think that you just take some water and then you compress it and change the temperature until you, something new happens, and then <laughs> you narrow down on the range in which that state is stable. So, what three things can you change? Um, well, you can change the pressure that you hold it at, uh, and you can change the temperature. That, that whatever that you have it at, I guess. Um, three things. I don't know. I, I saw a scale somewhere that had three things on it. I don't know. Oh, oh. So that that would be um, if you. I I don't really know much about this, but if you go to the Wikipedia page for phase diagram, I think this is where you saw it. Um, and you go down, scroll down a little ways. There's a three-dimensional phase diagram, um, which uh shows specific volume. Yeah. Uh, right. That's what I said. There's a third thing that you can play with. Now, why would that matter? So, like, if there's a very small volume? So, if you have, I don't know, yeah, I guess if you have a larger volume of something, then you, I don't know, it seems like it would be linked to pressure, I guess. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It, well, but a specific volume, so that, 
I, uh, I vaguely remember what specific heat was, but... So, specific volume is ratio of volume to mass. Uh, see, I don't, I don't know what that three-dimensional graph is, because it's... I mean, that would be linked to pressure somewhat. Mm-hmm. But I guess that's why the lines on that three-dimensional graph are semi-curved as you move along. Oh, wait, no, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I don't know. But lesson here is that ice is cool and it has many things. Right. Um, yeah. And the, the different crystalline structures that it forms into, I think, are pretty cool. Too. Like I, there's not pictures of the different phases. That a lot of them have little molecular diagrams of the crystalline structure. Mm-hmm. But, so like, normally you have hexagonal crystalline ice. Um, there's ice IC that when I was talking about earlier, which also occurs our biosphere uh, in a small amount is cubic crystalline. And then there's also like ice two is rhombohedral crystalline. Ice rhombohedral? Three is, yeah, rhombohedral. Really? Yeah. Okay. Rhombohedral. Um, and then there's tetragonal crystalline ice and monoclinic crystalline other things. And then ice 15, I don't know, proton ordered form of ice 11 or ice 6 rather. I don't know what that means. So, I guess that's enough about ice. Um, I also came across while I was browsing for interesting things to talk about. Um, the space.com search for life section where they um, aggregate stories or news articles and stuff about um, sort of the search for extraterrestrial life and stuff. But that's pretty cool. Just something to keep an eye out if you're interested, or keep an eye on if you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, and then also came across uh, something that mentioned the hundredth anniversary of the discovery of cosmic rays, mm. um, which is in two days. So. Hundred years ago, in two days, um, Victor Hess went up in a hot air balloon and a high altitude flight um, on a quest to find the source of these high energy particles that were observed on the surface of Earth. And seeing as he noticed a higher concentration, the higher he got in the atmosphere, it was thus inferred that they come from outer space. Um, and so that was the first discovery of cosmic rays and hundred year anniversary in two days. So. Well, that sounds good. Okay. So, briefly, what is a cosmic ray? So cosmic rays are just high-energy, fast-moving particles that have that are high-energy enough that they sort of that they can easily pass through lead shielding and other things that normally block radiation. So, is that an equivalent to a gamma ray then? Um, no, because gamma rays can be blocked by lead shielding. Okay. So, what would cause a cosmic ray? Um, well, we don't really know. That's one of the weird things about cosmic rays is that Darn. they're still somewhat of a mystery. Um, I mean, supernova and other high energy cosmic phenomena are suspected to release these high energy particles, but nobody knows exactly. Nobody has proven exactly where they come from. Still pretty um, good though. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, that's the end of the, things that are happening or websites and such. Um, now, I guess we can talk about science. Yes, on. why don't we talk about science? More science? I guess we've been talking about some stuff. Um, oh, this first subject under science is... Uh, well, that's pretty cool. A call for infographics from the JPL. Um, so I guess there's a... JPL infographics is a crowdsourced attempt to get some better data visualization stuff for the different things that NASA is working on, which is good because people like infographics. So the the first infographic I saw there was this one about um, like various protostars and then how big they'd have to be and then what would happen after, you know, throughout their lifetime. So it's kind of a diagram of huge protostar, blue supergiant, supernova, explode. Now, I've never heard of anything called a supershell before, but it sounds cool. And then they have various ways to get a black hole and then various ways to get supernovas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, so I think supershell is like a term for part of like the galactic, the very large galactic structure. So like, um, of course, now I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> yeah. Um, fine. So 
what I was thinking of is uh, like walls, filaments, and voids. So like the mm-hmm. large scale structure of the universe. Yeah. The super shell sounds like it could be something like that. Something to do with that, like large scale gas clusters, gas clusters, and stuff like that. Right. Uh, I I think in this particular, I, I I don't know. Is there a Wikipedia entry on it? On super shell. Yeah. Well, I didn't think of that. Mm, well, so you type in super shell into the Wikipedia and it says it is a Somali football club. So, <laughs> so, uh, and there's no disambiguation page, so not quite uh, sure. How about super bubble? Okay, that might work. Yeah, there we go. Now we're talking. Used to describe a cavity hundreds of light years across filled with high temperature gas, uh, as a result of supernova. So it's a little bit so. smaller than the filaments. Yes, far smaller. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that's just the the gas cloud as that results from the supernova. Right. Okay, then that makes more sense. Yeah. Why don't we talk about the thing that's also going to be happening happening soon? The uh, blue moon. Oh yeah, we can do that. Um, I was just gonna say, if anybody is listening and is good at making infographics, you should check out the link and. Uh, yeah, definitely. And if you're link. listening and you can make infographics. Why are you listening? But furthermore, why haven't you told us that you're listening? I mean, really? Yes, off of that. <laughs> yeah. So also, uh, I'm, I notice now that for some reason, whenever I try to click on what exactly is a blue moon in the show notes, I don't get that link. Um, Broken. I mean, is it broken for you too? Nope. Okay, well, maybe my computer just... I mean, the article is not that interesting. It just tells you what a blue moon is. But really, a blue moon is when there are two moons in one month. So you're telling me it's not actually blue? No, it's not actually blue. Darn. Sadly. Um, so usually one month has, so a moon, lunar cycle is 28 days, so usually one month has one full moon. Um, once in a while, since we have longer months than 28 days, you get uh, a moon, full moon at the beginning and a full moon at the end, which is the case this month, actually. Full moon, I think, was on the 2nd, and there will be another full moon at the end of August. Oh, that's um, pretty cool. I have noticed very, uh, very nice moons recently. Um, like, so this, this, this year, I've noticed a bunch of full moons that, that were very, uh, very bright and very easy to see. You know, we had the super moon this year also, right? Um, yes, we did. So it's, it's been a very active year for moon science. Yes, for moon observation. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so there are different traditional definitions and stuff. I think that's the, the accepted definition is, Two full moons in one, one calendar month. Uh, speaking of things that are going to happen soon, well, just kidding. We'll save that for later. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, so <clears throat> on my trip, I was in Seattle for a while, and I got my hands on a copy of The Economist, and there was an article about um, scientific journals going open access instead of having to pay for, like, whatever, multiple thousand dollars subscription a month. Um, to have access to journals like Nature and uh, stuff like that. Um, more and more journals are using this open access model um, to provide their research for the public to have access to, which is, I mean, makes sense because most of the research done, at least in the U.S., is, or a lot of it is government-funded. Mm-hmm. And so if tax money pays for the research, then anybody should be able to read it. Right. Um, That's the idea anyway. Right, and so things like Plus One and Archive are two examples, two fairly well-known examples of that. Um, people sort of doing the open access model to scientific publishing. Um, one of the caveats about that people have cited about turning the open access model is the lack of um, sort of the lack of uh, can't think of words. Um, a significant level, I guess, of peer review. And so there, people are worried that if anybody can publish to these open access places, that they, there will just be a bunch of crap papers that get released. Um, which is really not true because then when you publish to one of these open access sites, then you get even more peer review than you normally would. Mm-hmm. Um, and more people not, can read it. That makes sense. Right. Well, and it's also non-anonymous. Like, uh, journals, published journals right now do anonymous peer review. Right. Um, and so this is a chance for people to not only get their stuff peer reviewed, but then also possibly collaborate and stuff like that with their reviewers. Um, and so 
interestingly, on the note of worry over fraud, um, turns out that uh, a recent study in Plus One, which is one of those open access journals, um, cited that uh, about 20,000 papers worldwide each year are fraudulent, which means that they have sort of fudged their results. So, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. No, I sad. So how many papers are published every year then? Um well if that's one percent. If if one percent is twenty thousand, then two million per year. So that's a lot of papers to read every year. That is quite a lot of papers. And I, I, I think too that if you take away the anonymous, uh, the anonymous factor and um you, you let just about anyone you, you let more people read things, it'll be easier to find what papers are uh mm. you know, falsified. Right. Um on the other hand, I think sometimes too that sometimes when somebody is for almost I I don't want to say forced, but sometimes their job or their department's money or, or you know funding or whatever sometimes that might come into play where oh if I don't publish this paper all of this is going to just stop mm-hmm. and, I th- and I think that probably happens a lot too. Not that falsifying things would help either, but I don't know. Right. And it's not like I haven't made up results when I've done a science experiment. Yeah. Um, so, I like how you make that admission at the end. Um, well, I mean, so, <laughs> right there was this, so there was this one time, and it was this ridiculously boring thing. We were swinging pendulums around, and we had already right, done well, it, like, you know, thousands and, of times. I mean, do I need to do it again? And this is in school, and right. so it really doesn't matter. Right. And, Versus these are, like, published journals and stuff. Right. Uh, and, and so this is a little bit more, uh, important to do it right. But I mean, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's enough about boring science. Let's talk about the search for extraterrestrial life. Okay. Um, I read a very interesting article, um, on io9 about why we should look for signs of extraterrestrial life besides, uh, radio signals. So right now the main, uh, what what other things are there? Method for well, I'll get to that in a second. But right now, the main method, like being used by SETI and stuff, is to um, search for radio signals, like emissions from some other radio capable civilization. Um, but apparently, recently, somebody came up with the idea of looking for um, extraterrestrial bubbles, which they describe as essentially large astroformed swaths of a galaxy. So we talk about terraforming, which is altering the climate and ecology of a planet. And then so this astroforming would be manipulating uh, stars in different solar systems. Um, one possible way to do that is uh, with the Dyson sphere, which we have talked about quite a while ago, I think. That was in one of the first episodes. We talked about the Kardashev scale. Um, and so a type 2 Kardashev civilization has access to... Um, or has the capability to build Dyson spheres, which is essentially a sphere that surrounds the sun and traps all the energy emitted by the sun. And then that gets put to use doing other things. And so from that, there's no light coming out of the sun. Um, and then this idea was that, well, if they can make one Dyson sphere, they probably would go colonize other nearby planetary systems and then construct a Dyson sphere around that star, and so then you'd have essentially just dark spots in the galaxy where multiple uh, multiple Dyson sphere-surrounded stars have been, or are all near each other. I thought that was cool. Okay, so I, I, read, I read the article, and so we we had talked about this, uh, I'm going to butcher the name, the Kardashev. Yeah. Uh, and we've talked about his... Type one through three galaxy or civilization types, and I think we concluded that humans and humanity here on Earth hadn't even surpassed the type one definition, right? Uh, us? Yeah. Have not? I don't know. I don't remember. Um, I don't. I don't think we have a large scale application of fusion power. Last time I checked, I don't. I don't think we. I don't think we have any antimatter, and I don't think we harness that right. much solar energy. No, we are not yet a type one. You know, maybe we should fix our definitions. I mean, is there somebody else who has an alternative definition that at least includes us as step one? Anyway, uh, so I think it's interesting that uh, in that article, 
So there just hasn't been any evidence for large-scale artifacts, you know, sitting around in galaxies. And since the universe is a little bit old, I mean, it has been around for 12 billion years, and we don't see too many type 2 or type 3, and by many I mean any, uh, you know, it's probably not going to be there a while. Yeah. I mean, is there a way to explain that for any other reason, or... Um, wait, sorry, say that again? Well, so, we, the, the the universe is really old, right? Mm-hmm. And according to those definitions, the type type 1, type 2, type 3, um, so, let's see, a type 2 uh, civilization used Dyson spheres or Dyson swarms all over the place, they use star lifting, antimatter all over, um, they live in multiple star systems, and they use all sorts of high-powered things. And then I think a Type 3 uses supermassive black holes and essentially can harness the power of an entire uh, galaxy. Uh, and we don't see that. Right. Well, the universe is also very big, and we haven't like seen all of it at all. No. But, um, I mean, you'd think they'd be around there somewhere. Yeah, right. Well, so now this proposed new method of looking for presumably a Type 2 civilization mm-hmm. would be um, multiple star systems, all with their star being whatever. Well, so on that, on the, on this, um, Karshadev scale, there's actually, uh, type 4 and type 5. In science fiction, yeah. So that's an yeah. example in science fiction, yeah. people have, like, yeah. I like the science fiction ones better. Yeah, right. I like the, the third bullet point down in type 5. Uh, I didn't read that. Uh, oh, I hate that series so much. Okay. Well, so anyway, saying. yeah, that, that's, uh, I thought that was cool, a new way of doing that. Okay. Uh, let's see, what else do we have? Um, we have some stuff about, more stuff about extraterrestrial life. Um, so there's a paper published recently that, uh, claimed that the Goldilocks zone of a star, which is like the thin band where planets are the right temperature to support life as we know it, is uh, based on the star's chemistry. And so a planet can only support life for as long as the star's chemistry allows it to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that could be some data to take into effect as far as looking for um, extraterrestrial life, looking at stars that satisfy these criteria for a relatively stable um, Goldilocks zone. So yeah, more just more stuff about looking for extraterrestrial life. Um, and then we've got a couple things about science fiction. Oh, we love science fiction here. The first one is uh, a website where a well, that just looks cool. Photographer took some old photos of military and government like top secret projects and stuff, and applied some CG to oh yes make them look science fictiony. What is that first picture even supposed to be? Probably some sort of turbine or airplane machine, something like that. Well, when you look at it, it looks like the guy is walking up to it with, like, a briefcase. Or a satellite. Yeah, but, I mean, there's a bunch of guys. Yeah, well, but it looks like they're almost boarding, boarding it. Like, But if you look at the shadow, it looks like it could be a, a aircraft of some sort. Or yeah. Maybe, or a blimp, maybe. Well, hmm. I don't know. That's weird. Let's see. What else do they have here? Um. Oh, my gosh. Screw oil. So, yeah, there's some pretty cool uh, ideas, taking old uh, photos and then... I'm kind of invi- kind of indifferent about the second one, not impressed, not impressed with the third one. The fourth one, this this wiggling orb, that's, that mm-hmm. one's pretty cool. Yeah, well, and so the, that's actually almost cooler when you consider the actual image and the history behind that, because that's a photo of the Echo Project, which is um, an inflatable mirrored satellite that would bounce like military signals back to provide sort of a stationary um, reference point in space. Like when I see it, I, I almost like it's it's weird because it's like a reflection mm-hmm. back of where you you're standing in that picture. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um. And yeah, so that's some, just some cool photos and stuff. Um. And then an interesting. Usually, I don't like crack because I just don't like crack. Um, yeah. But. I thought this was kind of an interesting article about how six of the most pervasive sort of science fiction tropes today are from this crap book that came out, some guy wrote as a sort of a sequel to War of the World, um, the H.G. Wells book. Mm-hmm. And so this, this guy 
Garrett P. Service wrote Edison's Conquest of Mars, where Thomas Edison goes to Mars and, like, essentially just destroys the aliens that sort of wrecked us. And, right. Um, well, that's kind and of cool. so, yeah, so that's the first mention of ray guns and disintegrators uh, for spacesuits and spaceflight in general. First epic space battle between spaceships. Um, the phrase reverse the polarity, uh, space mining, and aliens building the pyramids and alien abductions, like one of the first sources with all these things in it. And they are now sort of pervasive throughout our science fiction culture media, which is interesting. Um, and then they start talking about um, current space exploration and stuff. Uh, I came across the, and hopefully many of you have already seen this, um, but this is the YouTube channel for Fight for Space, which is a documentary uh, that people are trying to get funded um, to essentially raise awareness for the sorry state of the space program. And now we've we've talked a lot about this here on this show. We've we've talked yeah. about uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and his urgings, and how mm-hmm. and how um like it's less than a quarter of a percent or some minuscule percent of a dollar on for every for tax uh, to that goes to NASA. Right. Yeah. Um. So, do you want to play the trailer for the documentary? Uh, which one is the trailer? How about the documentary trailer? Oh, yeah, I could play that. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to let it buffer for a minute here. Wow, YouTube. So, yeah, so if anybody is interested in this, you should definitely go check out their Kickstarter. And So, it's a Kickstarter project. That's good. Yeah. So, let's talk about the Kickstarter while uh, it's loading up. Okay. Um, so, they've already passed their original goal, I think. Um, yeah, so their original goal was 65000 They are currently at 77000 and change. They have 13 days going, to go. They're going for now 100000 I think. Um, they're going to try and get a theatrical release and stuff, which would be very cool. So if, you're, if you, if you want to back this project, and you can still totally do that, um, you, can, uh, pay t- you can pledge $10 and you can get a, a digital HD download of the film that they make. And that, that those pledges go all the way up to lots of money to ten thousand. Um, right. uh, you know, the, the, some of these have cool prizes or you know, not prizes, wow. but you know, gifts. Somebody did the ten thousand or more pledge. Ah, it's probably Notch or somebody. Yeah, he's bored. Right. Yeah, doesn't say U.S. only, so it's fine. Mm-hmm. But um, so what? Do you, what in your opinion do you think this is a good thing to do on Kickstarter? Uh, yeah, seeing it, I think this is the type of thing that should be on Kickstarter. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It, this kind of project, it's a creative project for, uh, science means, uh, usually Kickstarter's used a lot for games and small business kind of things, but I think this yeah. is really nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, video is buffered. Cool. Now, let's see. Let's do this. Go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. If Kennedy said, we will go to the moon uh, sometime before the century ends. <laughs> what is it? What is that? It's not ambition. That's pandering. We doubled the number of science graduates in this country during Apollo at every level high school, college, PhD. Doubled it. Uh, I think everyone was so proud of our country, so proud to be an American. It made everyone stand a little straighter and try a little harder and strive to reach a little farther. In 2010, the space shuttle, after nearly 30 years of duty, will be retired from service. By making sure that all those who work in the space industry in Florida do not lose their jobs when the shuttle is retired, because we can't afford to lose their expertise. We don't have an ambitious space program because we don't have the money. Using the crew exploration vehicle, we will undertake extended human missions to the moon as early as 2015. In other words, what he was saying was, I think it'd be nice to go to the moon and the guy who follows me can do it if he wants to. Constellation was uh, had some problems, had some technical issues, and uh, more importantly, had some serious budget issues. It never received the funding that was promised. Part of the problem is that from the public's point of view, they don't quite know what's going on in space. And for a long time now, decades, we've had this space shuttle, and so they've been seeing videos of uh, you know, astronauts juggling their food in zero G. Well, that's pretty interesting the first five times, but after that they wonder, well, you know, 
What's this buying me? What's this doing for me, the car buyer, right? Now, we are in a situation in the United States with a little bit of an anti-science theme going. And that's not good. Our future is out there and here, but not just here. Why aren't we supposed to go to Mars? So you can uh, watch the rest of the video on uh, YouTube. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, so, or there is a link in the show notes. How, how, how good. So... Do you think that that what Bill Nye actually said was true? Yes. That there's a anti-science kind of thing going on here in the United States. Do you, I? I think that is very true, and it is scary how true. Yes. Now, I think that we have talked about this before. Yeah, and we, we will definitely talk about it again. So, but. and it's a weird thing too. So, as, as a college student, I, I took two physics courses: physics one, physics two. And now there's a point at which. So, so sometimes even I want to stop knowing like the nitty gritty calculus level details about the science I would like to know about. But generally I do find, and I do agree that most people don't want to even know about, you know, some science. Yeah. Yeah, definitely true. So when will this, um, I mean, cause it's already funded. Well, when will this documentary, uh, come out? Um, let's see. I mean, I don't know if they have like a definite date then if they just got the funding, but. Looks like oh they're gonna they're going to have an original music score so original music for the show and it was going and it's going to be composed by the Star Trek Next Generation composer Ron Jones that's pretty cool yeah um I'm, I feel like they could have gotten some more people to interview well but or different like better known people well I I, they could have but I felt what they what they had interviewed there was still pretty good I I thought that was yeah no definitely but that was like Neil deGrasse Tyson the Bill Nye right Seth Shostak and Leroy Child who's an astronaut Robert Picardo yeah. so yeah they had the big names in the trailer right so I think that's enough for right now so our interviewees so they have uh they have the list of interviewees now I don't think they're too bad I think they're pretty good here. Um, I mean, I don't know many of them either, but I mean, how many people, how many people do regular people know that are in the science industry? Essentially no one. Right. I mean, Bill Nye has been away from doing science kids shows for so long. I doubt many parents of, you know, relatively young kids would even have a clue who he is now. Yeah. Well, they they don't appear to have a, a date planned, but it, it presumably it would come out sooner rather than later. Right. Uh, December 2013. Oh, okay then. So later then. Yeah. Yeah. Not too late. No, not later. not not too late, but not 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 sooner really. Well, I don't think that they've filmed I think all that they've filmed really was in the trailer. Well, they did a good job with the trailer so far. Mm-hmm. But it it's a it's a good thing to uh to push for. I'll put a, yeah. Yeah, put that in there. And so that was called Fight for Space and uh, you should really fight for space, definitely. Yep. So I think uh, you have another video here too. Well, I think that was, uh, we're gonna talk about that and then talk about new space things that are happening. Well, well yeah, you, why don't we do that? Anything, uh, whatever you want. Curiosity. Hmm, I'm Anybody? curious. Yes, right. Um, so tonight at 12.30 or so, um, the Mars Curiosity rover will touch down on the red planet. That's called Mars, uh, by the way. Right. Well, obviously the Mars Curiosity rover is going to Mars. Yeah, well. Sometimes you never know. Um, so big deal. First rover to Mars with this array of mobile laboratory equipment and stuff. Um, there's a lot of coverage going on. There's a lot of, it's, I mean, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, this is one of the most advanced, this is the most advanced rover that we've sent out. So I feel um, like we should mention the seven minutes of terror. Oh yeah. So since Mars is 14 minutes away by, light time yeah 14, light, light, four, minutes 14 light minutes away so it takes um, about 14 minutes for a radio signal to right get so there. we can't guide it through the descent and touch down to the surface so it's all um automated automated um and so there are seven minutes between hitting upper atmosphere and touching down on the surface which are called the seven minutes of terror mm-hmm. really for us here it's like 21 minutes of terror after because it, we know when it'll hit upper atmosphere, and then you don't know what happens until 21 minutes later when you know it's touched down, because you have to wait 14 minutes for right. the signal, and then once the signal starts, you have to pay attention for seven minutes to know whether it's crashed or not. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so it, it's a pretty impressive landing procedure. There's a couple of videos. Uh, yeah. This, yeah. And I think um, while you were gone, we had done a, we had played one of the videos about the seven minutes of terror and it was pretty interesting that they go through many different stages to get the, you know, rover safely on the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's videos. And the most well-known terrifying. part of that procedure is the sky crane. Yeah. That's what they're calling it anyway. So it essentially lowers the rover down while hovering in the air. Right. Well, so the reason behind this is that if they get, uh, if they use boosters to slow the descent all the way to the surface, it'll kick, kick up a big cloud of dust and probably break the rover. Right. And so they're using this sky crane, which is essentially a hovering platform, um, with its own boosters that's far enough up from the surface that it won't disturb too much dust. And then it just lowers the, the actual rover down to the surface. And, and so from the video, it seems like it'll all work and it'll all go well. But we'll mm-hmm. see. So, yeah, so there's lots of cool stuff going on. There will be a bunch of links in the show notes and stuff um, to different videos and information, uh, links to where you can follow the landing and stuff. NASA TV yep. uh, will be doing it. There will be lots of Google Plus Hangouts with different important people. Um, I wonder what Neil deGrasse Tyson is going to be doing. Oh, something huge and extraordinary, I'm sure. Um, yeah, so lots of cool stuff going on there. Um, Really, if you're interested, go read these other people who are good at writing and talking. Right. And so there's there's a few links that we have. We have uh, Will Shatner and Will Wheaton. Uh, they're, they're, they narrate two videos, and you can pick which one you like better. Which one did you like better? Uh, Will Wheaton. Yes, that's the, like Will Shatner. Yes, that is that is my problem also. I, I picked the Wheaton one also. Uh, um, we also have uh, Everything You Need to Know About the Curiosity Rover Landing. We have, and that's from io9, we have a... Live show from Wired, I believe. Sloosh, what? So this is a behind-the-scenes tour of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Oh, okay. And that almost looks like it's a hangout. Interesting. Uh, and then what else do we have here? We have some more information about the rover itself. What uh, It has like a little uh, mini chemistry lab so it can analyze samples that it takes. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also have more info on, on where to go to see it, so... I think will be very well covered. Um, so in addition to NASA doing coverage uh, later tonight, one of our competitors is also doing coverage tonight. Twit is uh, doing a live special. Oh, they are. Yeah. So they're, they'll be narrating that. Uh, they don't the, do space. Well, okay. So it's funny you say that because they actually kick, they, they used to, they used to have two science shows every week. Dr. Kiki Science Hour and This Week in Science. But then they kicked both of those shows, those shows off the network. Uh, so you're right. They don't normally do space, uh, but I, for some reason they felt like it, they wanted to. So they're getting on our turf. Yeah. So retaliate. right. Yeah. So you you better uh, better uh, retaliate and take over. I'll write a strongly worded letter. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Um. Yeah. So definitely, uh, everybody should check check those links out. Um. And watch NASA TV tonight. So the... so I've pulled some people who. I know who I talk to regularly, like my parents, for example. And I asked them, have you heard about Curiosity? And they said, what? Right. Um, I've asked them, so uh, are you going to watch the uh, live Curiosity coverage tonight? And they're like, Olympics? Uh, so yeah. I, I have the feeling that most, a lot of people don't know about this yet, which is unfortunate. Well, it's a lot of, right. Well, it's a big deal in the science community. community <laughs> Imagine which that. Which is really, I mean, yeah. It's yeah. sad. We've already talked about this. Right. It, is lame. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we'll we'll try to spread the news then. Yeah, and I think we might be doing a yeah a hangout at some point tonight or something. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so that'll be on the the site or somewhere. Yeah. Well, we'll see how we do it, but we'll definitely be doing something. Yep. Yeah. Um. And let's see. So as a parting thought, uh, I found an excellent video. Excellent. Of the. Terror of a possible method of terraforming Mars, just like a sort of CG thing that somebody put together, a short video. Um, it's in French, it's English subtitles. We probably, I mean, we won't play it because it's French audio, so nobody will know. But it, but it's, it is a cool video, and yes, I mean, very good sending rovers to Mars is one small step on tra- terraforming Mars. I mean, if we get enough rovers mm-hmm. there, we'll we'll be set up. Right, right. So is that all we have today? I think so. Okay. Where can we uh, find you on the internet, Sam? 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Sammy Burtz, or my blog, also sammyburtz.wordpress.com. Which you need to blog uh, more on, by the way. Right. Yeah, it's all at work. Though. Ugh, it's not that bad. And but of anyways, course, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so follow Sam on Twitter and follow uh, follow him on WordPress. And of course, uh, this is the universe. This is where we do science, science news, science fiction, science stuff. We talk about rovers if there are some, and we talk about bosons if there's a discovery. And of course, I am Ryan Rampersad, and you can find me just about anywhere, especially on the Twitter, RyanMR. And of course, uh, you can listen to more podcasts just like this on the Nexus. Now, since Sam is back, he'll be doing more universe episodes again. So, Mm -hmm. if you want to look forward to that, please do, and uh, follow us everywhere you can. Yeah. Okay, then. Sounds good. Have a good one.